I want to add the, to take us into a couple of questions here about decision making. And one of the things that a leader does is making decisions, sometimes in a very collective fashion and sometimes in a very lonely fashion. What are some of the most difficult decisions you've seen a leader make or has to make, either yourself or people that you have advised as leaders? What are the real, real difficult decisions? Can you give me a couple of examples from your own experiences? I can start with the obvious, which is terminating people, sometimes people that you actually hired. It's never easy, but you learn over time First of all, not to surprise people, but to give them the warning sign. And when I say warning, it's the wrong choice of word to actually give them the opportunity to get your feedback and improve and avoid the final ultimate act of termination. I also believe that there's no such thing as bad employee. There are employees who are not the right fit for the environment of that particular organization or for the culture of that particular organization. So when you position it this way, when you don't make it personally, when you don't say, hey, Joey, you are really bad at what you do. No. Hey, Joey, I don't think that your skill set is aligned with what the company is expecting you. I honestly believe that we put you in a bad position by asking you to do things that are outside your comfort zone or outside your circle of expertise. I truthfully believe that there's a better environment for you out there. And in fact, I'll be more than happy to be a reference for you and help you find this other job. So it's still a task. What I'm explaining is how to do it the right way. But that, to me, is always the toughest part of of a management position. Letting go of people. Letting people go, yeah. Let's see, another difficult decision you have witnessed maybe somewhere else. It takes me back to my, my younger days when I worked in the White House and President Clinton was having to make these, you know, presidents are remembered for the legislation they pass. And so President Clinton, I remember I was in the White House. I lived through this whole experience where he had promised during the campaign to make changes to welfare reform. And so it was all, you know, his election was coming up in 96, so so long ago, but it stuck with me because he vetoed two bills that came to his desk that weren't quite right on welfare reform. And in the whole aspect of these bills, he was very collaborative worked across the aisles, worked with his own poverty experts, worked with you know all the constituents that had anything to do with this bill. And the third bill came to his desk and it wasn't perfect, but he thought it was good enough. And he went into the press briefing room in August and said to the press and kind of not prompting his staff exactly that he was going to sign this third bill. You know, those are tough, tough decisions that presidents make every day. In the end, after all of the collaboration and all the information, I'm going to go down this road and make a decision. You know, it reminds me when Obama, same thing, when he made the big decision about health care. When Senator Kennedy, Massachusetts, passed away and Scott Brown, Republican, replaced Kennedy, the president realized, Obama, that this was his chance where he had a Democratic-leaning Senate, that he might be able to get health care through because that's what he promised. And when he promised Teddy Kennedy that he would do this, and he made this big decision. And some of the advisors had said, you know, Rahm Emanuel, who'd been the chief of staff, said, no, just do bite size, bite size changes to healthcare because that's what people can manage. But Obama, in the end, after all the advice, he said, I'm going to move forward on this because I can get it done. Now, he suffered greatly after that with all of the reaction and people trying to 
destroy it or destroy pieces of it. But those are decisions that presidents and leaders make all the time, right? That are big decisions. And it takes guts to make those decisions. But they also, in both cases, those two examples, both of those presidents in those pieces of legislation had a lot of input and a lot of collaboration. But in the end, they pull the lever. That's what makes a leader. And Mary Barra of GM talks about that too. Mary Barra is one of the most collaborative leaders. I've watched her career from you know executive assistant to CEO of GM. She has always said, I always ask questions and I always listen. But in the end, the leader is responsible for the decisions of which they make. Yes. Thank you for both those examples, David and Betsy. Both of them have to do with the courage of alienating another human being or other human beings. In the case of David, that's a person that you will let go. In the case of the presidential decision was that basically people on both parties are going to be mad at you, but you have the courage to do that. So we all, through different media, books and movies and experiences, know about some examples of successes and failures of leaders, sometimes that we have witnessed personally, sometimes that we have seen in a particular situation. Could you describe either a success or a failure from a leader that you have observed, you work for, you work with, you've consulted with, and analyze it and say, what will be the remedy? If that's a success, that's a failure, and how to reinforce that if that's a success? What's the start? I'm happy to go. What's amazing about this example is that it was an amazing success story, and then it became an amazing failure story, which was former Governor Andrew Cuomo. And, you know, Governor Cuomo did an amazing job during COVID and his daily briefings. What was amazing about his briefings was I think everyone in the U.S. was tuning in every day, no matter what your time was, to see what Andrew was talking about. During those couple months, he was the most perfect example of an integrated leader. So he had all the facts and data and details and then was able to kind of also show here's what's going on in New York, here's going on everywhere else in the country, here's what we're doing about it, here's why it matters. But then he brought in the heart part. And that was the part, my family, my kids, how it impacts me, the heart-wrenching stories that he would tell every day. It was amazing. His popularity soared and people were saying, oh, you should be the next president. Or in four years, you should be the next president. And then boom, he fell out of grace. And I think at that moment, he went towards his own, he he went more to the individual part. He lost the, we're here in the collective healing of our city and our country to take kind of advantage of his popularity and go down the writing a book. And it exposed himself and exposed some other weaknesses. What it also exposed that he didn't do a good job of, he had an old leadership model before COVID where he was kind of slash and burn. As he went up the, you know, up in his success in his career, he didn't have as many friends along the way. And so when things started to unravel, he didn't have the base of friends around him to save him. It's a sad story, really, because he's such a talented person who gave a lot to New York and cared a lot and has had a whole career of public service. But he's a recent example, I think, of where he just got out of integrity in his leadership. And it caused him to have to resign. So he was both, you know, when you have those school of thought about the transactional leader, the inspirational leader, the ethical leader, he really pushed to the max at the, the inspirational part and the transactional part by sharing data and saying how he was managing. And then he violated one 
ethical rule, basically, that almost cancel all these achievements, which is perhaps a question about the high stakes that leaders are playing with. I know that the average length of tenure of a CEO has shrunk considerably in the past 20 years. It's now something like four years, I think. And my feeling is it might have to do with the economics of it, but it has to do also that we expect success and we're very intolerant of failure of our leaders. And, you know, we don't show any empathy when our leaders fail. (laughs) So the kind of the reverse empathy, certainly in politics, it can be fatal. Yes. David, any story you want to share about success or failure? I was going to give an example of people that I interacted with, reported to, but Betsy got me thinking political figures. And so without getting into uh, politics, I would say that a great moment for me when the leaders of this country showed a lot of empathy, President Bush after 9-11, when he primed up this pile of rebel and stalking to the nation, or Barack Obama after what happened in Newtown, when he spoke to the nation after he met with the parents, it's not part of your job description. You hope you will never have to do what Bush or Obama had to do. But in that moment, something that wasn't on the resume was tested and brought to bear, which is you are a human being. You have to speak to the nation at a personal level. This is very hard to do for anyone over the TV and their ability, both of them, to connect with the audience and give them a sense of hope in the middle of a very, very tough moment for our nation, to me, was a great example of uh, leadership with a lot of empathy, the highest level that uh, a person could have. The opposite side, and again, I'm not being political, but I think some of our leaders, and Trump is a good example, they rule by divisiveness. They cater to the few who support them. They don't think that their leadership applies to those who don't support them, that they have to also embrace them not agree with their ideas, but take them into account, acknowledge them, and not demonize them, and make them feel like, hey, there's somebody in the White House that doesn't really care about me because I'm not supporting uh, views that they disagree with. And I think it's true also in a company, right? I mean, there's always going to be those people who they support everything you say, they try to you know, uh, make you feel like they're 100% behind you, But then there is the few that will stand up and say, well, David, I I disagree with you respectfully, and I'll tell you why. You got to be prepared to take those challenges, to take those people who don't agree with you and maybe embrace them even more and not dismiss them as the few that I don't care about because they don't necessarily agree or follow everything that I say. So to me, that's the negative part of leadership when you only cater for the people who agree with everything you say. By the way, you lose a lot in that process because you miss the opportunity to listen to the people who are giving you a perspective that if you embraced it, you would probably make better decisions. But instead of doing that, if you shut down and say, I don't care about you because you don't follow me, you don't agree with everything I say, you miss so much in your ability to make the right decision. David, that's like such an important comment you made because... Part of the job of a leader is creating a safe environment so that people who don't agree with you feel safe enough to tell you they don't agree with you. And that's really, really important because if someone thinks that, oh, I disagree with the leader, I'm going to be hurt by that in some way, 
I'm not going to say anything. So how do you get the best input is creating an environment that people say, oh, he or she needs to know this. And that's another thing Mary Barr has done, right? Is that she goes around and says, it's important. She walks her plants and she talks about this. It's like, I walk my plants. She goes to people on the front lines and says, tell me something that I need to know that I don't see, right? And so how do you create that environment across all the levels? Tell me something that I need to know that I might not be seeing. Because all of the information comes from our people. That's right down the front lines, whatever that is, right? So you were spot on on that. I fully agree. And sometimes actually I would surmise that you have to seek the disagreeing voice more so than you seek the agreeing voice. As difficult as it is for you as a person that needs reinforcement as a leader, sometimes you have to go as far as possible away from your domain of expertise, where you sit in the company and listen to that voice at the end of the hall that may actually give you that insight that you need, even and maybe especially when you disagree with your prior hypothesis. So seeking uh, disconfirming evidence is really something I look for leaders because it's a sign of courage, but it's also a sign of sound decision making. One of my colleagues, Elliot Maisie, has a big leadership company in New York, but he's always said that leaders who have guts will ask the people around them on a regular basis, what are the behaviors that I'm doing that might be getting in my way or our way? And he said on a regular basis so that people will start to tell you and feel safe enough to say, here's what I think needs to shift or this, whatever it is, is getting in your way, our way. And then you create a transparent organization where people are not in fear 